as Oregon starts the monumental task of digging out from the most destructive fires in recent history, Phoenix and Talent, two small towns sandwiched between Medford and Ashland, face an unbelievable challenge. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, reporters Noel Crombie and Ted Sickinger talk about how the Almeda fire ripped through those two Jackson County towns, devastating thousands of homes and ripping the community apart. Crombie has traveled to the Rogue Valley twice to talk to people about what they've lost and how the towns desperately want people who have been scattered across the valley to return. Sickinger reported on how the loss of so many mobile and manufactured homes is a catastrophic blow to the state and Jackson County's affordable housing supply. We talked about that and much more. Here's our conversation. Noel Crombie, Ted Sickinger, thanks for taking time to talk today. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Noel, let's start with you. You've been down to Jackson County twice to see the devastation there. Can you describe what it's like? The devastation is breathtaking to see in person. Uh, what you see when you drive through both communities is a widespread destruction, um, the incineration of whole neighborhoods. The possessions that were left behind are burned beyond recognition. I I couldn't really tell what I was looking at when I was walking through some of these uh, communities. And, and, it, and it really lines Oregon 99 from Medford to Ashland. Um, the, the damage is uh, sort of dots that, that whole corridor. So we had thousands of structures destroyed and people are scattered all around the valley down there. Uh, how do you find people to talk to when you're trying to you know, find those stories of people who who lost their homes? Well, on the first time that I was down there, I encountered really just shell-shocked residents who had been displaced just, you know, the day before. They were trying to get into town. They were Mm -hmm. walking really in the middle of the, you know, the street. Um, And so I, I approached some some people uh, when I first got there. And then on the second time uh, around, I drove uh, 99 um, uh, quite a bit. And there were residents that were returning uh, to um, to basically see if there was anything left. And so I talked to a number of people um, just you know, just driving that stretch. Um, and then also I, I made some contact before I traveled there with uh, some elected leaders, some grassroots organizations um, that helped to put me in touch with people who'd been directly impacted. Where are people living now? Can you give a sense of the various living situations for people who who lost their homes? It's a desperate situation for thousands of people. Uh, they are in temporary housing uh, that could be hotel rooms. Um, some uh, local employers have uh, tried to arrange for um, emergency housing, uh, you know, re- renting Airbnbs or other available houses uh, uh, for the short term. Um, people are sleeping in their cars. Uh, they're in uh, travel trailers. 
there at the Expo Center, um, which has um, sort of been the site of some major you know, relief um, location donation site. Um, they're staying with relatives. Uh, you know, there's three, four families staying with uh, relatives. Hmm. Um, so it's it's sort of um, a range of housing at this point. Now, Ted, bring you in a bit here. You really went deep on cataloging the damage um, to the mobile home and manufactured homes that were really, um, you know, lining uh, 99 through Phoenix and Talent. Uh, Can you describe just the totality of the damage that we know of, um, the raw numbers? Sure. Um, the numbers are changing a little bit, I think, as uh, you know, the local officials down there put a finer point on it. But Jackson County originally said that there were some 2,700 structures destroyed in the fire. Mm-hmm. I got an estimate from a, um, an affordable housing organization down there that, that the county now estimates that there are about 2,400 residential structures that were lost and that three-quarters of those, an estimated 700 1,750 units were were manufactured homes in about a dozen mobile home parks that wow. you know sort of line that Bear Creek Oregon 99 corridor. Um, and I guess uh, Noel and I heard similar numbers on that, and that there are about 3,000 residents that had been displaced um, in the fire. Now, up here in Portland, we think of affordable housing through the lens of maybe larger mid-sized apartment complexes, maybe, you know, duplexes or, um, you know, townhomes or things of that nature that have that are deemed affordable or in more affordable parts of the city. But mobile homes and manufactured homes play a big part in the state's affordable housing stock, right? Yeah, they do. The state has been trying to preserve both these parks and help upgrade the housing in them because they um, they realize that you know this is a big part of the, what they call the state's naturally occurring affordable housing and and what that means is that you know it's accessible to people of mm-hmm. modest means um, but it it was developed without a federal subsidy or a state subsidy so these are really you know sort of accessible homes and. Um, the couple that I profiled in my story told me they lived in a, a sort of a 1960s era single wide that they bought in 2007 for ten thousand five hundred dollars, mm-hmm. and and I think it's important to note that you know these are structures that people own, and it's you know it's something they can build equity in, um, and that's not the case when you're you're in one of these you know sort of multifamily rental units. Um, and, you know, as sort of a general estimate, um, I, I spoke to a, an advocate for mobile home park owners, and he told me that, that you know, many residents are able to get into these um, mobile home parks for as little as $5,000. And I think 40% of these, of manufactured housing or mobile homes are, are older than 1980. So they're, you know, they're fully depreciated. So you own the structure and then you pay kind of a pad rental, and those can range from, Three hundred and fifty to six hundred and fifty dollars, and and that really makes them, you know, on a monthly basis, affordable for uh, low-income residents, you know, seniors on fixed incomes. And the problem is that now that these are gone, um, they are to some extent irreplaceable. Buying a new single-wide might cost you twenty-five grand. Mm-hmm. Um, Double-wide, you know, forty to fifty thousand. 
if they were available. And then again, I was told that this notion that these are, you know, the they're mobile is a bit of a misnomer. Right. You can't really move these things, even if they, you know, you were able to buy one of these, um, you know, older homes. You can't just pick them up and move them. So. It really is a, a huge loss of a very affordable, you know, form of housing down there. And, uh, you know, it was uh, so concentrated in, you know, these mobile homes in that area. Why were these fires in particular so destructive to uh, manufactured homes? Yeah, um, I guess the experts that I talked to, you know, emphasized that this wasn't a wildfire um, in the traditional sense. It didn't start in the woods. Um, this was a purely urban fire. These are really densely packed communities, um, and you've got these fine fuels that were uh, being burned and you know, forty to fifty mile winds fueling that, and they would they would touch down in one community or after another and they'd ignite one structure upwind and then and then you know burn through everything that that was downwind and and mobile homes are probably uh, again i was urged by advocates to say that you know this is not a mobile home problem that this fire burned everything in its path no matter the the kind of construction was but but it is clear that again, mobile homes are a lot of them are clad in metal or, or concrete siding, but they have decks around them. They have wooden windows, wooden skirting, and these are things that can easily ignite. And, and they're often on piers, so the fire, uh, the you know, air and fire can move below the structure and go through the floor. And you know, thin walls mean they can spread quickly through the structure. And and you know, given the density of the the park layouts. Um, that the fires can quickly jump from one structure to another. And I think there's going to be a lot of emphasis after these wildfires. And you know, again, this wasn't a wildfire. It was kind of an urban conflagration on building codes, on kind of the ignition zone around homes um, to prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future. I'm not sure that in the, in these kinds of mobile home parks and, and with the density that again, and the winds we had, once you, once you ignite one, the chances of it just completely spreading um, through the, the mobile home park was very high. Noel, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the folks you met who uh, lost homes in these communities. And they really were communities, right? People who lived there for uh, decades in some case. Yeah. You know, and just to um, expand a little bit on what Ted was saying, you know, I, I w- at one point when I pulled into one of these parks, a totem pole uh, mobile park in Talent, uh, a woman was there with her daughter and two neighbors. And she she described the park as a last chance park, that um, it was really the, the only option for the people who are living there and that very few of the residents um, had had insurance. Um, and so, it, you know, it is sort of a... Um, creates this very desperate situation for those who have been displaced. Uh, I spoke with a, a number of people whose stories were really just just really heartbreaking. Um, they, uh, one of the families um, I spoke with uh, was a Sukadi, the Berrigan family of Sukadi um, is a mom of, of three. She's expecting, she loved living in um, the uh, mobile home park where she lived. It was called San Rogue. 
trailer park, uh, had 17 mobile homes there. And um, she described it as a, as a pretty close-knit community, the kind of place where, you know, if she was running late, she could ask her neighbor to keep an eye on her kids. Uh, people celebrated birthdays together. They shared food with one another. Her mom lived a couple doors down um, and uh, a babysitter lived across the street. Um, and all of that has been upended uh, for her family and for the other uh, folks who live there. It's, you know, the memories, you know, everything you have, material things come and go, you know, but I will never see my neighbors. I will never see my kids play with any of these children they were practically raised with, you know, everybody knew each other, school meetings, everything. Yeah. It's hard, very hard. And those stories I heard, you know, over and over. I spoke with some uh, some folks who were, you know, working at a, a vineyard. Who, uh, you know, one woman had a, a daughter who was confined to a wheelchair, um, was disabled, and you know, she and her daughter are now living in a hotel, um, desperate to find some longer term housing. Uh, it was this. It's this really just sad uh, story after sad story of families who are now, you know, we're already living on the margins and are now really struggling to figure out uh, how to move forward. Noel, there's so many different things from your story that were illuminating, but you really focused on the Latino communities that lost their homes in Phoenix Talon. And these were kids who went to the local schools, right? And now they're kind of spread around the valley. Yeah, I stopped by to talk with the superintendent while I was down there, and the the district has really served as a, a hub for uh, for the community. They they know they they're in touch with the families. It's a you know a government entity that is trusted by the families, um, and and they are providing you know meals and mm. school supplies and trying to find where their families are uh and they had set up a number of satellite sort of centers um to meet the needs of the families that are you know are phoenix talent uh kids mm. and um you know when i sat down with the superintendent he had a, a bunch of uh like um landscaping equipment in his office um, that local residents had donated uh, to the district to get to uh, parents who are in landscaping and may have lost uh, the tools they need to keep working. Um, and so the, the district is, is really uh, this is nexus um, for, for the local community. And um, they seem to be you know working hard to stay in touch with families who are now far flung in, in Jackson County. Ted, I'm wondering if you can shine some light on how Jackson County, which is, you know, the sixth most populous county in the state. Um, it's not a small county. How was Jackson County doing in terms of uh, providing affordable housing to residents before, you know, 1700 uh, of these homes were wiped off the map? Yeah, I think the county was already suffering from a pretty acute shortage of affordable housing. It was a 2018 study that I um, read that uh, an additional 5,400 affordable housing units were necessary to meet the need down there before the fire. Um, 
the there's a lot of uh, sort of uh, it's it's expensive down there to live down there particularly you know in um, ashland and you know the whole of the rogue valley has had this pressure for a decade and i think more than half of jackson county's rental households are classified as rent burden meaning they pay 30 to 35 percent of their income on rent and almost a third are severely rent burning um meaning that Rent takes up more than half their income. I spoke with Jason Enzi, who runs the the housing authority of Jackson County, and he was sort of just providing some anecdotes on you know, how this plays out down there. And they have a current occupancy rate. They operate about fifteen hundred units of affordable housing, and that's the occupancy rates there have exceeded ninety eight percent for the last decade. Hmm. Um, the vouchers that they provide for people to go out into the the housing market. And, um, and seek their own housing. The success rate apparently has has been low and declining in recent years. And you know, when they open up a new multifamily housing unit, it is immediately full. You know, by the end of the day, he said, when they open these wait lists, they'll have a two year waiting list to get into that facility. And all of a sudden, you've taken twenty four hundred units out of the supply. Uh, Greg Walden, uh, the U.S. rep for that district, was down there, and he said at a press conference, he, he brought up the fact that Jackson County in the last year had built 400 units of housing altogether, um, you know, much less affordable. So you can got to get a sense of not only this backlog of need, but what's been added to it um, through this fire. And it really is a dire situation down there, I would say now. And yeah, when you talk to those local authorities, you know, what do they make of of the fire and and how it's going to affect this already um, terrible situation? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's compounded by the fact that, again, the economy down there has been and the housing market has been very hot. And, you know, the land underneath these um, mobile home parks may be more valuable to sort of redevelopment into higher price housing at this point than than it is to go back into a lot of these mobile home parks a lot of these were built 40 to 50 years ago they were outside the city limits and there was traditionally this stigma attached to them so many were built on these industrial lands that have since been absorbed by these expanding cities you know some of them are in what's now what are now designated as floodplains and they may be prevented by current zoning rules from redeveloping those into the same kind of housing. The cleanup that has to take place before any of these things can, anything can be rebuilt is extensive. And I was having a conversation with someone this morning who estimated that it might cost $75,000 per home site to actually come in um, take the debris out, which can be very toxic with asbestos and all kinds of chemicals from household goods and, and everything else. And you might have to go two feet down into the topsoil to remove some of this stuff before it's it, the ground is even ready to to rebuild on. So, I mean, it's a, it's a long process. There's a whole variety of, of barriers that may be there. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's a really complex picture at this point. Well, let's take a break and come back and talk a bit more with Noelle Crombie and Ted Sickinger. So, Noelle, when you talk to 
folks down there, what are their plans going forward? Do they even have time to think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, uh, I mean, a real, really good question. The one of the things that was so um, so striking in talking with families is, is, is that they really haven't had. There's not a there hasn't been a pause for them. They haven't been able to take a break from you know work to to shift focus to this crisis. They, uh, in many cases, um, reported to work the next day and have worked since. So. Uh, I, I think that that um, has made sort of processing the trauma, um, a, you know, a challenge. Um, and you know, that there was just a sense of 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 desperation uh, among those um, I spoke with. I I don't know that any of them have a clear sense of of what's next and and how to you know, find stable housing. One of the grassroots organizations that I spoke with there uh, was saying, sort of just stressing the urgency of this and that if the if the community and leaders uh, can't figure this out, you know, there's just sort of a narrow window of time before they may lose these residents. Um, you know, they may end up finding stable housing and work elsewhere and that, you know, People who had helped make the community what it is uh, may may be gone if the community can't figure this out in short order. I know some of the folks you spoke with were living with family in White City or Central Point, which are other towns on the other side of Medford, right? Right. Yeah, they're they're staying in um, borrowed tra- travel trailers, or they're um, staying with um, relatives. Um, you know, some some of the families you know I spoke with are, are you know larger families, and um, they're in you know cramped um, housing situations right now. Ted, what about um, on your end? What are you hearing from um, either you know uh, housing authority officials or or other um, state leaders about what their plans are to help Phoenix and talent going forward? Because it's a monumental lift. Right. Um, well, just to expand on what Noel was saying there for a minute, I spoke with uh, uh, Representative Pam Marsh. She's the local state rep, and her district encompasses the area burned by the fire. And she was telling me, as Noel was saying, that that to some extent they don't really know where people have gone to. They've they've just dispersed. You know that these communities really want these residents back. There at the moment, I think there's a, a effort going on to provide transitional housing to kind of bridge the gap between these emergency situations and hotels and when more permanent structures are going to be built. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, that's going to rely on um, FEMA um, and federal aid. And the question is whether or not FEMA is going to actually be providing structures, trailers, recreational vehicles, you know, some kind of other housing units for that transitional housing or whether that assistance is going to come through just in a monetary fashion. Um, I spoke with a um, a gentleman who works for the Department of Land Conservation and Development down there, the Southern Region representative, and he's been tasked with taking an inventory of available land um, where some of these 
trans some of this transitional housing might be sited, and they're trying to prioritize um, you know sites that would be close to town, Phoenix, to schools, to services, to transportation. Um, but at this point, uh, again, they don't really know that uh, whether FEMA is going to come through. The, the state has created a disaster housing task force and asked a variety of state agencies to provide plans to, to help lawmakers create you know, these uh, you know, legislative solutions to some of this. But I, I still think they're in kind of disaster mode at this point. The short-term needs are huge, and uh, getting to this next step is um, you know has to happen quickly. Um, but it isn't. Um, there's no concrete solution on the table at this point. Yeah, and just to piggyback on something that Ted is saying, you know, when you're down there, it is clear that the community is still uh, in crisis mode. There are still emergency relief locations where families can come and get food. Uh, clothing and other real basic items donated to them. You know, these are um, the victims of this fire uh, left are left with nothing. N- not only did they lose their homes, but they've lost, in most cases, everything that they own. Um, and so when you're down there, you can see uh, these uh, relief locations, uh, some of them, you know, pretty busy during the day, um, just trying to meet the basic needs of, of people who've been displaced. Yeah, and Andrew, you you mentioned the, the sort of insurance question, as did Noel, and what I was told was that, again, the state does not require mobile home owners to to maintain homeowners insurance and a lot of the the loans that these folks have they're not traditional loans they're what's referred to as a chattel loan which is a personal property loan and they can bear very high interest rates and they don't simply go away because the you know the home burned down so families are still burdened with those um fema is uh, tasked with providing this disaster assistance and uh, providing up to thirty-five thousand per household um, if you were uninsured or underinsured, and there's additional benefits available for personal property and emergency needs. Anecdotally, I'm hearing already that people are having difficulty getting through this process, or maybe being turned away. Um, and I think that's going to bear some more reporting as well, just to see how successfully people are able to access some of the emergency aid that's supposed to be available in these situations. And I think that on the on the FEMA question, uh, what I heard uh, from people on the ground was a real reluctance to uh, get on the federal government's radar. We're talking about people who uh, themselves may have, um, you know, immigration concerns or maybe their relatives do, and they don't want to complicate, you know, their situation by um, getting involved with the uh, federal government. And meanwhile, uh, as you mentioned earlier, we have folks, if they're able to, I know a lot of seniors lost their homes too, but folks, if they're able to, are working um, despite being displaced. And um, this is all during a pandemic and uh, during a still difficult times economically, uh, regardless of these fires. Yeah, I, and that was something that I heard, a concern that I heard from uh, from people in Southern Oregon that, you know, now we're looking at uh, residents who are living in pretty crowded conditions in some cases. 
um, and you know a concern about what the the implications may be for the uh, region's COVID rates. Uh, well, well, thank you both for your reporting and for taking time to talk about it. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared links to Noel and Ted's stories in the episode notes. If you value this type of journalism, please consider subscribing to Oregon Live by visiting OregonLive.com slash pod supports and give this show a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the program. Until next time.